We're going to continue uh, in, in this series this morning called Belief Matters, where we have been kind of investigating and going through the words of the Apostles' Creed. And today we are simply covering really one sentence uh, in, the, in the Apostles' Creed, really a phrase, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Um, you'll remember a few weeks back, or, or maybe you don't, but, but when we talked about Jesus, I said we're going to talk about the person of Jesus uh, this week. We're going to talk about who Jesus is, that he's fully human and fully God, and how in the world does that work, and I probably gave you more questions than answers. Um, but this week we're going to talk more about what we're used to talking about when we talk about Jesus, which is the work of Jesus. In other words, what Jesus does for us uh, in, in his life and death and resurrection. And we're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins today. Matthew six fourteen and 15 is our gospel text. This directly follows um, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus instructs his disciples how to pray. And it's the place where we have the Lord's Prayer given in Scripture. And immediately after it, Jesus says this, If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Martin Luther King evokes strong feelings of respect for most people today. We recognize him as a bold leader, a unifier, and as someone who inspired a society to change. During his life, however, King was also one of the most hated men in America. The change that he represented was obviously not easily received. King was the subject of derision, and his life was under threat from the second that he became the leader of the bus boycott in Montgomery in 1954 until his murder in 1968. It is imperative that we remember, however, that Martin Luther King Jr. was not first a civil rights leader or a political figure. Martin Luther King first was a pastor. And in his book of sermons entitled Strength to Love, came out in 1963, the same year as the Birmingham campaign, King talks about the power of forgiveness and love. He said in one of those sermons, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Can you imagine attempting to turn enemies into friends if you are Dr. King? Enemies who see you as subhuman. Enemies who firebomb church Sunday school classes and kill innocent kids. Yet the entirety of Martin Luther King's practice flowed from this idea that love is the only force that can transform an enemy into a friend. Have you ever tried to get rid of an enemy by hating them more? I have, and it doesn't work. Instead, it gives that enemy more power in our lives and makes us more hateful and bitter. In our creed, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins because forgiveness is the power of the gospel. Just as we hear the power of transforming love in Martin Luther King's sermon, so we experience the unrelenting forgiveness of God that we find in the Christian story. 
This phrase, the forgiveness of sins, is a loaded phrase because it implies three things. The first one is this, is that there is a problem. And that problem is that we are sinners. Now, we don't like admitting that we are sinners. Our culture especially does not like to hear this. We are a self-improvement culture where if we just believe the best about ourselves, then we can live our best lives. We're not supposed to have such negative self-talk like I'm a sinner. Even our confession that we pray most weeks on page 12 of your hymnal shies away from these words, I'm a sinner. Listen to the words we say. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love, right? But nowhere does it say we've sinned. These are all synonyms of sin, but they're also avoiding the problem at hand. We could just say like we do on the alternate confession that sometimes we pray that kind of it's hidden in the back of your hymnal that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. You see, sin is missing the mark of God's will for our world and our lives. And we cannot perfectly hit the mark, try as we might. This is why we confess sins each and every week. The importance of our weekly communion practice is not just so that you can have snack time with Jesus. The importance is that we enter practices that form us each and every week. We are saying that Christians are the type of people who understand that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. This is indeed hard for us to do. But self-awareness is the first step. Like an addict in a 12-step meeting, we come and confess right away. And because of our confession, we are able to receive. Alexander Soltzenhain writes of the problem of our self-awareness in this way. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You see, we self-justify our sinfulness by saying that we aren't as bad as those people over there, whoever they are. Yet each of us has this evil impulse lying within each of us. In the reading from Isaiah, we heard of this character, the suffering servant. We often read this passage in preparation for Good Friday as this has been interpreted as a prophecy about Jesus. Hear these words once again. It was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear it? Our sickness that he carried, our sufferings that he bore. He was, he was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. This suffering servant was carrying the sins of Israel just as Jesus carries each of our sins. There is clearly a need that we have. We are sinners in need of God's forgiveness. That is step one. And there is a solution to this problem of being sinful. And that solution is that God forgives us unconditionally. 
As much as we don't love to proclaim our own sinfulness, we also are not that great at receiving the unconditional forgiveness of God. We are so used to having to earn love, recognition, and respect that we don't know what to do with unconditional love. The Greek word forgive that is in the Lord's Prayer when it says forgive us our trespasses means release. We are praying for a release from the burden of guilt. In our pattern of worship, this is why there is always a pardon after confession. We can proclaim each and every week after confessing sin, hear the good news. When we confess before God, we are making ourselves vulnerable before God. Like a child who has to confess they have done something wrong before their parents. Or like a dating couple and someone goes out on a limb and confesses, I love you first. We are quite vulnerable after our confession. We have just confessed our sins before Almighty God. But here's what God does. As far as east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Or Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love, God's love toward us. Or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God pardons us and restores relationship with him. Do you hear the good news? This is why sometimes mainline, predominantly white churches get classified as boring. Because there needs to be times when this unconditional love and this unmerited favor overwhelms us. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the forgiveness of God? In our passage from Isaiah, we hear the results of the servant's suffering. It says this, But the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. If his life is offered as a restitution, he will see his offspring. He will enjoy long life. The Lord's plans will come to fruition through him. After his deep anguish, he will see light and he will be satisfied. Through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and will bear their guilt. Therefore, I will give him a share with the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong. In return for exposing his life to death and being numbered with rebels, though he carried the sin of many, and pleaded on behalf of those who rebelled. His life is a restitution offering. He bears our guilt and makes us righteous. He pleaded on behalf of us who rebelled. In John, Jesus says, No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In his death, Jesus provided the possibility of repaired relationship and reconciliation with God. This week, I shared the story of the prodigal son with the preschoolers during chapel time. And as I did, one phrase came to my mind, no matter what. I think we all read that story and have some sympathy with the older brother. He's done right. He follows the rules. He's helped out his dad. And yet, the father has never forgotten or let up on the hope he has for his youngest son. He loves the son no matter what. He doesn't ask him what he did when he comes back. The kids this week got it. That's what I pray we build into all of our children, whether our own or our grandkids or kids we teach here at church or contact at the school or our neighbors, that God loves you no matter 
what? Friends, this is grace. This is what we should be known for as church. This is what we should be shouting from the rooftops no matter what. If we aren't telling someone about it, then we might not know it for ourselves. Luke Timothy Johnson states it this way, God is able to see and to summon a self that we perhaps are not able to see. God calls into being that which is as yet only potential within us, namely a self that is not a sinner. In that sense, God forgives us rather than the sin. The sinful self is allowed to die. The self that can live to righteousness is raised by God. Friends, God sees in us something that we don't see ourselves. Like an incredible teacher who sees gifts in a student that they cannot see themselves. Like a gifted developer who sees what land could be. God sees God's very image in us. And he sends his son to put the sin that tarnishes that image so much to death. And Jesus takes upon himself the guilt of all. Of every evil thought and inclination that anyone has ever had. They are forgiven. And the result of that is that we become forgivers. It is important, friends, that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that we really pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray this line, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we really think about that line, we won't just glaze past it. Because directly after the Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to pray. Jesus says, right, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Sometimes we hear this like it's somehow a threat. But this is not a threat. Instead, it is about becoming forgivers as we pass the peace that we have received. You notice that each and every week, we stand and offer one another signs of Christ's peace and love directly after we have received pardon for our sins. As much as this is a symbolic gesture as we gather, what it is meant to do is teach us that we are forgiving and pardoning one another as we have been forgiven and pardoned. Right? The pastor says, as a forgiven and reconciled people, let us offer one another signs of Christ's peace. When we have received the unconditional forgiveness of God, it makes forgiveness toward other people in our lives possible. In the Nicene Creed, the little longer version, the line that we say about forgiveness is this, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Luke Timothy Johnson reflects on this and writes, baptism is given for the purpose of forgiving sins, it leads to the forgiveness of sins, and it generates the practice of forgiving sins. Baptism generates the practice of forgiving sins. Friends, as Christian people, we are not only recipients of God's forgiveness, we become vehicles and agents of God's forgiveness. When Christian communities are fractured and display the same sinful divides as culture, it has to make us wonder if we have actually received the forgiveness of God. When we pass the peace to one another, we practice seeing one another in a new way. Just as God sees us for the image of God that lies within us, 
So Luke Timothy Johnson writes, we can learn how to forgive each other from the way in which God forgives us. We can cultivate the habit of seeing in others a self that is not defined by their sin. We can seek that self and call it into being, encouraging the growth of that larger self that is capable of living in communion. And as we learn the discipline of genuine forgiveness, we also grow larger, both because we are forgiven in turn and because we increasingly see our neighbors as God perceives them. Friends, the way that we move past judgment, hurt, and pain is not by harboring it deep within us. It is by releasing it and offering peace and forgiveness. Retribution will not be had in this way. We will not get an eye for an eye. This is the way of our world and how we often think about justice. Thus, we have a never-ending stream of violence and wars in our world. Tit for tat just doesn't work. Remember how to forgive meant to release Adam Hamilton says it like this. He says, Our willingness to forgive, and by this I mean to relinquish or release the right of retribution, means taking a new set of chains upon ourselves, chains of bitterness and resentment. Those are heavy chains to carry around. You know people, perhaps you are one, who is carrying around some of these chains. You drag them with you everywhere, and they are tying up your heart. They make hearing God's voice almost impossible. They make joy seem utterly elusive. When Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, I think that he meant that we do not carry shame and guilt around. We can release our own guilt to God, and we can release the guilt that we hold over others who have wronged us. James Howell, reflecting on this phrase in the Apostles' Creed, writes, Forgiveness is not getting out of court with no more than a slap on the wrist. Forgiveness moves toward a new, restored relationship. Friends, the hope of forgiveness is not just moving past something. The point of God's forgiveness toward us is reconciliation. It is a new reality and a relationship that is restored and improved. It is way better than forgive and forget. God forgives us, hasn't forgotten what we've done, and loves us anyway. And then God calls us to do the same. God calls you to receive God's reckless love and to become reckless forgivers. Will you?